You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we offer two interviews, each recorded live at NCQA's inaugural Health Innovation Summit, held in late 2022 in Washington, D.C. These interviews could not be more different. One focuses on mitigating and preventing healthcare worker burnout. The other considers whether software used by healthcare companies could actually be widening gaps in health equity. First up, let's talk about burnout. It's always a possibility for healthcare workers, and in any aspect of the healthcare ecosystem, it's understandably unhealthy for staff to be overworked and overwhelmed. The COVID epidemic especially created a recipe for disaster. A dangerous contagion led to a triage of patients overflowing into hallways. Within a year or two, this situation triggered a severe reduction in available medical staff. Some staff got COVID themselves and couldn't work. Some left for private health services agencies. Some left medicine altogether. And tragically, some committed suicide. How did it come to this? And how do we stop it? For answers, I interviewed two leaders from New York City Health and Hospitals. NYC Health and Hospitals is the largest municipal health system in the United States, serving over a million New Yorkers with 11 acute care hospitals, five skilled nursing facilities, more than 50 community health centers, a home care agency, correctional health services, and an insurance plan, MetroPlus Health. Dr. Eric Way is Senior Vice President and Chief Quality Officer for NYC Health and Hospitals. He's an Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and an Adjunct Professor at the NYU School of Global Public Health. He's the fellowship director for the NYC Health and Hospitals Clinical Leadership Fellowship. He serves on the board of Metro Plus Health and as faculty for the Greater New York Hospital Association UHF Clinical Quality Fellowship Program. Dr. Ted Long, MD, MHS, is Senior Vice President of Ambulatory Care and Population Health at NYC Health and Hospitals. He is also Executive Director of the New York City Test and Treat Corps, the city's comprehensive response to the COVID-19 pandemic since June of 2020. The program has completed more than 11 million PCR and antigen tests for New Yorkers, as well as distributed tens of millions of at-home tests. Dr. Long also oversees population health and supervises the NYC CARE program, which provides universal access to care for all New Yorkers, regardless of immigration status or ability to pay. Dr. Wei and Dr. Long presented a seminar at NCQA's Health Innovation Summit titled Helping Healers Heal, Evolving Emotional and Psychological Support for Healthcare Workers. 
You'll hear first from Dr. Wei with some stark statistics on healthcare's current behavioral health crisis. We realized about 10 years ago that we had a crisis on our hands. And so one of the uh, statistics that really drives this home, we were losing somewhere between 400 to 500 U.S. physicians to suicide a year. And for me, I went to a smaller medical school, 100 students per class. That was like my entire medical school being wiped out on a daily basis by suicide. And so, you know, I think this is a, a problem um, that's multiple decades uh, in the making. Um, I think a lot of the factors were adding more and more onto the plates of uh, healthcare workers, whether that be physicians and nurses. I think the electronic health record played a, a big role in this, and while it did provide a lot of benefit in terms of patient safety and quality uh, and finances in, in healthcare and standardizing um, workflows, uh, it also right, added more time away from what traditionally uh, gives physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers joy, which is the human interaction with patients and the you know, the empathy that they can bring to the table and the healing power that they could bring to the table. And so, right, uh, trying to, to balance those things out in terms of um, what we need to do uh, in the electronic health record um, with the time that we can actually spend uh, doing the things that bring joy. Um, and in this COVID-19 pandemic just added uh, unprecedented emotional and psychological trauma uh, on top of a already stressed uh, healthcare system um, and U.S. healthcare workers, and I think a big part of it is also we're in a staffing crisis. Right, many have left, retired early, um, and it's just adding more and more burden uh, onto those who exist. And finally, I think it's culture. We uh, give healing power to our patients and their families freely, day in day out. But the House of Medicine actually discouraged or didn't allow us to turn that same healing power towards each other. Uh, it was much more about toughening uh, new nurses, new doctors, new healthcare workers uh, up so that they can um, withstand the emotional and psychological trauma uh, while ignoring the humanity uh, and their, the needs of the healthcare worker as well. And I would add on to that. Everything Dr. Wade just referred to um, shows the extent and importance of this, um, of this issue you know, leading right up to COVID. And then, as with everything that happened during and after COVID, COVID changed everything. Um, we saw you know, the, this, this burning platform issue, that just the, and then the unimaginable happened. Then COVID made it just that much worse. Um, and you know, I remember in March and April of 2020, um, seeing just uh, you know patients uh, pouring into our emergency departments at Elmhurst Hospital, there's the iconic picture of um, uh, patients that many of them weren't even sick, but everybody was terrified, just coming to the emergency department, seeking answers, seeking care with questions, um, and they didn't know where else to turn. All they did know is that they were seeing and hearing uh, about friends and family members that had died of this horrible, new, incredibly scary uh, virus. They didn't have anywhere else to turn but the emergency room. But then flip the question, flip the situation. Imagine if you're an emergency department doctor like Dr. Wei, you're in that emergency room, you look out the doors and you see a flood of people, some of which could have this disease that could put you at risk personally, um, just trying to make their way in, uh, needing something that you feel 
um, in that situation that maybe you, you can't even provide um, all of the answers to all of the people out there that are just terrified. That's what we had to deal with. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we lost some of our own during that time, too. Physicians during COVID took their own lives, and it was because they felt overwhelmed um, and because they wanted to help. That's what we want to do as physicians. Um, but it was the totality of the unimaginable stress of the situation just put on top of everything that already existed um, that made the situation, uh, it, it brought us to the point where it, it, it's become more important now than ever before to address burnout and to see what we need to put in place to, to help to heal our own um, the same way that we heal our patients. Um, and that's one of the things that's been most important to Dr. Wei and me as part of the, really the frontline response to the COVID pandemic in the epicenter of the epicenter in New York City. What you're talking about is the extreme of what I thought we would be even, even mentioning. Because when you're talking about people who love healthcare and are completely dropping out of the industry because they're burned out, no opportunities. And then, you know, and then there are other people who decide this venue of being in the, or being anywhere in a hospital situation, this setting, I, I can't handle it. I'd rather be working one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and then they drop out of, <clears throat> they drop out of working in that kind of facility and turn to uh, companies that contract people out for different kinds of services. And it's good. It's, it's nice that they make a, sort of a career move for them, but it ends up causing chaos. So worker burnout leads to many different things, and ultimately it just means there's de-staffing in addition to an increase in patients and a decrease in available beds. This is certainly not another factor that you need. It's, it's not going to make anything better. So what do we do to try to m mitigate the issue? What do we do to try to improve things? Um, and where do we even start to stem the tide? Yeah, I think step one is just to acknowledge uh, that we have a crisis, that we have a problem. And to really um, put the focus on our most important resource uh, in healthcare, which is the people. Um, and I really love J.W. Marriott's quote, where he says, you take care of the employees, the employees will take care of the customers, and the business will take care of itself. Find that even more important in healthcare where it's all about the human touch, the human interaction, the healing powers. And so we really do need to really, truly invest uh, in workforce wellness, uh, in healthcare, to make our healthcare workers feel like they are important, that we are supporting them, and we're giving them the resources to be able to routinely fill their, their empathy tank, um, their emotional and psychological tank, uh, so that they can give their best, the highest quality, safest care uh, to patients with the best uh, patient experience. I think that's, that's less about right, checking a box and saying that we offer yoga or art um, or meditation and really addressing some of the root causes, really getting back at, at the joy and work, right? Um, if it is about spending time, more time with patients and less time in your pajamas, uh, finishing epic charts, right? How can we reduce the number of clicks? How can we streamline workflows? How can we take things off of providers and nurses and put it onto scribes or, or other support staff? Um, what is it uh, that is, is taking the joy out of, out of healthcare workers? We need to address those um, as root causes. 
Mm-hmm. But I think it's also a culture change uh, for sure. Let's take that healing power and let's turn it towards each other. And that's what helping healers heal was all about. I wanted I to think, ask you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No. But it's may add one thing on to there. Um, you know, one of the, uh, the experiences um, that really was uh, very important to us in our system is, again, during the height of COVID, um, when we were, from a staffing perspective, uh, you know, we were turning all of our hospitals. We have 11 hospitals in New York City Health and Hospitals, and you have to just envision each of those 11 hospitals, some as large as Bellevue, just turning into large ICUs. So during COVID, we had 11 large ICUs. Every part of the hospital is turned into an ICU. But that meant we needed to, to staff um, each part of the hospital in, the, in these ICUs that we had created. And um, you know, our doctors and nurses fought valiantly at great personal risk to come to work every day. Um, but you know, despite that, COVID was strong. and It was uh, beginning to, to threaten our ability to, to keep our bed staff, to keep our hospitals running. Um, and I remember feeling terrified about what we were going to do if we ran out of doctors or nurses. Um, the Department of Defense, though, came to our, uh, to our help. And um, I remember the day at Lincoln Hospital where they walked through the doors and there was a celebration uh, that all of these, uh, these people uh, were here to help in their uniforms, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, you name it. Uh, they came through the doors to help to, to lend a hand to our teams that were working harder than humanly possible on the ground every day. Um, and it was emotional. There was rounds of applause. People, like, the cavalry had arrived. Um, but once the cavalry had been there for a little while, um, we all took a step back and they shared with Dr. Wei something really important, which was um, that what they'd seen and experienced there was the most similar to uh, you know, a war or traumatic battle scenario that they could possibly imagine. Um, this is in New York City in a hospital. Um, and uh, you know, based on our discussions with them, we took a page out of their book about how the US Department of Defense deals with burnout from their perspective and deals with the traumatic things that um, our soldiers have, have had to deal with across the globe. And we create a battle buddy system. Um, and the premise behind that was simple. Um, if you're going through, um, if you've experienced a traumatic situation, if you've seen patients die, if you don't know how to process the fact that you've worked 150 hours a week for the last three weeks straight because there was no choice, um, you know, how do you process all of that? And for many people, being able to have a lifeline to somebody that's also done the same thing, had shared life experiences, um, is the only way to help you process that. So we set up a battle buddy system the same way that the Department of Defense did under their guidance and, in le- and leadership. Um, and that, I think, really helped to, to help many of our own get through um, what was otherwise just an unimaginable situation for you know, clinicians in the hospital. You know, I was, I was going to ask you, I was thinking about that, is... Um First of all, you need to figure out what are the signs to identify before somebody gets to the threshold of doing something drastic, whether it's walking out or whether it's hurting themselves. Um, Because essentially, we're talking about a behavioral health issue. And I'll I'll go a step further. One of the biggest issues with behavioral health, because at NCQA, we're talking more and more frequently now in terms of looking at whole health care looking at the whole person and that behavioral health, there might be specialties that are involved with it, but that's not to assume that uh, physical health and mental health behavioral issues, they're all part of the same person. They're all absolutely interlocking. And one of the biggest problems with behavioral health has nothing to do with the industry. It has to do with the social stigma that for too long has been associated with any aspect of it. 
So imagine having to walk up to a healthcare worker that you and everybody and their mother is looking at for the last month and says, there's something wrong, we can see it, we can see signs, we can see them from the outside. Now you have to approach them and figure out how do I talk to them about this? How do I get them to recognize the issues that they're going through? Um, and then to uh, not to tell them to seek help, because you're not going to do that either. But what are, the, what are the services that you've put in place in order to do that? So let me have a, a two-part thing. First of all, how do you approach staff within the system, within H&H, &H, um, if you think that they're in crisis? And then second, what services have you developed or are you thinking about developing uh, in order to be able to assist them? Yeah, so I think I'll start by describing a little bit about our, our H3 or Helping Healers Heal uh, program. So it's, it's built on the premise of peer support, turning that healing power that we give to patients uh, to each other. And so tier one is really changing that local unit departmental culture. Right, so from being one of letting people deal with things on their own, let them be isolated and go through this downward spiral when they have a, a second victimization um, or compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma, it is uh, running and supporting them, running to the problem, supporting them, making them feel like they're important, uh, letting them know that there are resources, that we're there to listen, um, to share our own stories with them that are similar and how, how we felt and uh, how we got through it. And so that's, that's culture change at the front level. And I remember I show up to a, a ED shift at LA County USC and four or five nurses and residents at the beginning of my shift would be like, if you have five minutes sometime during today's shift, I'd really like to talk to you about a case. And so that, it was a huge culture shift, right? From you just deal with it on your own, right? Seek, seek help outside the healthcare system. Um, so that's number one. Tier two is, is peer support champions. So these are folks that are already naturally empathetic, kind of the emotional and, and supportive rocks uh, within uh, units that people lean on. Uh, let's put them through additional training as a peer support champion. And the goal is to have every discipline, every shift, every unit covered with peer support champions. So if something happens, we have this rapid response um, to do a one-on-one -on -one debrief or a group debrief. The other thing that the second tier, the peer support champions do, is they triage up to tier three. So not everybody who has a bad case needs to speak to a psychiatrist. But for those who do, who are identified in crisis, saying the number on the back of your insurance card is the first step, it's just not good enough, right? You're talking weeks, months down the road before they actually get the help they need. So how do we have these resources vetted, available, and be able to connect staff within 24 hours, within 12 hours? So they're immediately getting the help, whether it's a spiritual crisis, speaking of a chaplain, they're going through domestic violence uh, at home, a domestic violence counselor, right? Whatever the staff needs, we want that in tier three expedited uh, within 24 hours. And so really, right, having these three layers help us triage and identify those who are on that spectrum of going from having a bad case and feeling down about it to actual crisis, you know, even suicidal thoughts, and we need to get this person to the emergency department for evaluation. It's these three tiers that help us identify that. And so it's looking out for each other, it's lowering kind of the stigma around it so staff can ask for help themselves or ask for help for their colleagues and their peers and their direct reports as a, as a manager. Um, 
and then making it making it safe uh showing people that it's not going to be used against them right and credentialing privileging uh anything else uh really helps this and i think the the comment about right it's, it's a behavioral health uh issue i mean there's certainly un like the stress that you know depression suicidal ideation right that that you need a psychiatrist for but there's so much more that we could do up to that point so that they hopefully don't reach that level absolutely and if i if i could uh just want to share a couple of closing comments too yeah um to you know being here this is the first conference that uh that i've been to in in several years since before covid um, and everything that we've been talking about, the experiences we've had, that we've seen um, our friends and staff have, um, everybody here has had. And is a, it's great to be back here and there's a, such a power to being able to share what we've developed and learned with everybody here and to be able to have convenings like this so that we can learn from others and that we can uh, be able to help others uh, that are going through the same things that we've struggled through, uh, especially for the last several years with COVID. So. Um, uh, it's great to be back at NCQA. New York City Health and Hospitals leaders Dr. Eric Way and Dr. Ted Long. I'll have links to their work in this episode's description. But let me add here that if you think you need help of any kind, someone to talk to, a space for putting things in perspective, there's the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just dial 988 or go to 988lifeline.org for support. You can call, chat, connect with a doctor or a clinic. Whatever you need, help starts here. Next up, we take a deep dive into an aspect of health equity we've never talked about here on the show and that I hadn't even considered until I met Dr. Edward Jun. It's called algorithmic bias. When studying population health, trying to identify groups or areas that have been historically underserved by the healthcare world, it's important to get your numbers right. But until you hear this interview, you may not realize how easily your numbers might be skewed. Dr. Edward Jun is a board-certified internist and chief quality officer at Inland Empire Health Plan, where he is responsible for leading the advancement of Inland Empire's quality journey through transformative incentives, initiatives, and innovative solutions and partnerships. In this role, he also ensures the health plan's commitment to providing the highest quality of care for the members and communities it serves. At NCQA's Health Innovation Summit back in November 2022, Dr. John co-presented a seminar with Ted Robertson, who's managing director of the DC-based nonprofit company Ideas42. The seminar was titled How Inland Empire is Addressing Algorithmic Bias to Advance Quality and Equity Outcomes. Now, we've talked about health equity disparities and approaches to resolving the historic gaps in providing health care to all. But we've yet to talk about how the machines, the computers, and the software itself might have bias in its code. Maybe before we say any more about interoperability solutions and simplifying electronic health records, we should pause and consider whether there's inherent prejudice buried in the system. Recorded live at our Inside Healthcare Podcast Center during NCQA's inaugural Health Innovation Summit, Here's my talk with Dr. Edward Jun. First off, I want to find out what is algorithmic bias? How, how do we define it? Give us some examples, please. Happy to. Well, algorithmic bias is basically when an algorithm makes a prediction 
or produces a recommendation or provides an insight that impacts one group more than another inequitably. And this usually happens unintentionally. So maybe I can walk us through an example. Suppose for a given population, we want to understand who needed care resources based on who needed them the most. And suppose we use an algorithm to help us predict which members of the population would be at higher risk of needing these services. And suppose that the algorithm predicted that more dark blue people compared to light green people in the population needed more care. But what if we looked into this and found out that in reality, it was actually the light green people that needed more care, more so than the dark blue people based on their true health needs. This mismatch between what the algorithm predicted compared to what the true health needs of the population are is the basis of algorithmic bias, and it happens unintentionally. So it's through digital services that you're receiving the algorithmic bias, not through actual metrics of measuring from clinicians, of measuring patients, and then the numbers that they send back in? Or is there inaccuracy in the metrics that we're getting from certain populations? That's a great question. So I think it's more of errors that might be happening within the algorithm that might be producing some of the results with disparities in them. And for example, there's three types of errors that we generally look for inside our algorithms. One is label choice bias. And what this is, is we want to check for it to see if the algorithm is basically telling us what we ideally and truly need to know about our population. The second type of bias that we tend to look for is disparate errors. And this is checking to see if the algorithm is making any errors that might be impacting one racial or ethnic group more so than another. And the third area that we tend to look into is model deployment bias. And what we want to check for here is to see if the end users are following the algorithm's recommendations consistently. You have to figure that out before you can figure out what the solution would be to which end to to be fixing first. But you're concentrating on interoperability and the digital the digital side of things and what do we do to correct the algorithms so that they're they're being accurate and actually matching the reality of the situation, correct? Well, I think it's a yes and I think we want to first evaluate the internal algorithm to make sure that there's no biases or results with disparities in them. I think interoperability plays a big role in that because it gets at sort of how data is shared, how data is exchanged. And when we look at data models that uses data and information, we need to ensure that the data quality is at the highest standard so we have less of an opportunity to make errors. You know, when we're starting to talk about interoperability as well, um, hopefully, I would say it's a strange way to say it, hopefully the challenges and the issues that you're talking about here are universal as we start to hopefully use uh, FHIR as the basis of a standard for the interchange of information of EHRs and, and sending them back and forth. If so many different systems have different uh, platforms that they're using for software, hopefully these algorithmic biases are consistent in all of these different systems because if you come up with a solution, you can have another standard that, that would be saying, okay, if you're going to do some coding, this is where you start. 
this, these are some issues that are happening to everybody. And if everybody fixes them all at once, then we'll have, you know, because if, if you fix something in one system, but then you try to do something in terms of oper interoperability, it's, it's still not going to help. These things are going to be like a virus going through from one place to the next. Um, let me ask you, at our summit here, we are talking about health equity as well as digital solutions for health. And uh, you're at the intersection of the two of them. So if you have that, that image in your mind, how, how do you see the problems of algorithmic bias translating to a larger scope of uh, issues with health equity? Well, I think it's first recognizing that at the end of the day, algorithms are just the set of instructions to help us solve a problem. Again, they're literally just the set of instructions to help us solve a problem. So we use instructions all the time. For example, did you know food recipes are actually technically algorithms? So because we rely on these sets of instructions, we, for the most part, probably assume that they're correct. But have we ever stopped to ask, are they correct? Have we ever asked if they're producing the results that we need to see in an equitable and ethical manner? And I think when we use digital technologies that are all predicated on data models and algorithms, it requires our collective commitment to ensure that we're doing everything we can to use them responsibly and to be better stewards of this type of technology. It's for me what I'm thinking of, making sure that every population is represented, then we're making sure that there's no bias in any aspect of the situation, of any aspect of the workflow along the way, including uh, digital solutions as well. And as these digital solutions become more and more prevalent, uh, we have to stay on top of those to make sure that everybody is getting care delivered to them properly, getting identified properly, uh, and not having to be reprofiled repeatedly, because eventually somebody is going to they're going to be face-to-face -face with a clinician who doesn't have an accurate profile of them, and they're going to forget that, oh, I didn't tell this person about these meds that I'm taking. I didn't tell this person that. Well, I have to add that I don't think there's anything such as a perfect algorithm. I think there will always be sort of opportunities to improve how we use these uh, data models. But I completely agree with you. I think we have to ensure that all the appropriate racial and ethnic groups are represented whenever we try to use uh, these sets of instructions to help better serve our members. So as far as interoperability in general and the, technolo the technology that we're trying to develop to actually make it a reality, so where are we in that fight? Uh, and where do you think, what are your outcomes uh, for five years, ten years down the line? Well, I think it's continuing to advance sort of the progress we're making with our FIRE standards. I think it's also pushing forward with some of the recommendations made by the US CDI, the United States Core Data Interoperability Set that was just released. And I think it's also finding out ways to leverage APIs ethically, application programming interfaces. So I think they all merge together to help us get to where we ultimately need to go. So you're looking for an enterprise level solution that hopefully sort of trickles down or gathers everybody's own existing platforms together to, to be able to communicate with one another. I mean, if you do something like that, then you don't have to be trying to force every single hospital system to change over to some completely new platform. 
uh, and the chaos that, that that ensues for that. Or it could be a yes and in the sense that we could also grow from the local networks that all converge together into what this overall enterprise platform should look like. Okay. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add? No, I think this uh, conversation is timely, and uh, I think it's important that we write this better together story while we have the momentum. Dr. Jun, thank you for joining us at Inside Healthcare. Thanks for presenting at the summit, and, uh, and good luck. Thanks so much for having me, David. Appreciate it. Inland Empire Health Plan Chief Quality Officer Dr. Edward Jun on a pressing issue at the crossroads of health equity and interoperability. And now get pumped for some fast facts, the part of the show where we share information with you so you can share it too. February is American Heart Month, especially in the amazing minds of NIH's National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, a.k.a. the NHLBI. I'll throw you some tips from them on tuning up your heart, and after that, I'll a little bit about an NCQA HEDIS measure that deals with heart health. Click the NHLBI link in this episode's description for a stack of fact sheets you can post and distribute. Here's some hard numbers first. Each year, more than 800,000 people die of cardiovascular disease. This includes about 366,000 Americans who die of coronary heart disease, a type of cardiovascular disease known for clogged or hardened arteries. At least one in every nine people have been diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. What can help you avoid cardiovascular disease? Well, here's a couple of tips. Don't smoke. Use less salt. Manage your stress. Keep your cholesterol and your blood pressure and your diabetes under control. And please move around. I know it's not as simple as it sounds, but every little step helps. Here's a a wish list for keeping a healthy heart. Take a half hour walk every day. Sleep seven to eight hours a night. Take your meds. Take them on time. Make your doctor's appointments and keep them on time. And when it comes to snacks... Drop the chips and grab some fruit or veggies. As I mentioned, NCQA has a HEDIS measure related to heart health. Cardiac rehabilitation, known as CRE, assesses the percentage of adults 18 or older who attended cardiac rehab after a cardiac event, like a heart attack, a heart transplant, or a heart bypass. The assessment includes four different rates of attendance to consider in proportion to how long after the cardiac event occurred. Why is cardiac rehabilitation important? Well, the CRE notes that this rehab can significantly improve functional status and quality of life, and reduce your chances of dying from another cardiac event. I'll give you the link for this measure, along with links for the heart health tip sheets I mentioned earlier. In the meantime, be good to yourself and those around you. Pick anything from the suggestions above to try, then apply them to your life and feel better. And have a healthier heart for Valentine's Day. 2023 is gearing up to be a busy one for NCQA, and I've got some amazing in-person events to tell you about. So get out your calendar apps and jot these down. On May 3rd in Washington, D.C., we present our annual quality talks. Imagine a hushed auditorium a spotlight centered on one innovative speaker after another, and afterwards, the chance for you to meet with them in our speaker salons and connect with your fellow attendees from across the healthcare world. Seating is limited, 
So register now to be there in person. For more information or to view the speaker presentations from past years and find out about this year's speakers, go to qualitytalks.org. Now, Quality Talks takes place in a single spring day. For a more comprehensive experience, join us in Orlando for our second annual Health Innovation Summit. For three days, beginning October 23rd, this is the place to connect with quality and care delivery innovators. And enjoy our speakers, panels, training sessions, and an exhibit showcase floor. Our Quality Innovation Series features training and learning webinars held over a few months. We'll bring you the date soon, but in the meantime, many of last year's online session recordings don't expire until the end of March. So run to education.ncqa.org for more information. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Now, if you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What are some ways to support medical staff who are suffering from trauma and burnout? Think about it, then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, Maybe you'd like to be that guest, hint, hint. Just email us and let us know, communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 99 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Another one in the can. Thanks for joining us. Hurtling towards triple digits, everyone. Working up something special for our Century Mark episode one zero zero so keep checking in for details and in the meantime this episode's done there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate and you can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any apple or google streaming app you're probably listening to us streaming right now and whether you download the show or you stream it If you find us, if you're listening to us, then follow this show. Make us your favorite and keep spreading the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our continued award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.